Turn with me then for our sermon text today to Genesis chapter 12, verse 10, to chapter 13, verse 1. Genesis chapter 12, verse 10, through chapter 13, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for your wonders, your judgments, your miracles, each one, your faithfulness to your promises and covenants to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to your people this very day. We pray that you would bless this reading of your word, that it would be faithful to your word, to your intent, uh, that we would be guided by your revelation of yourself and your mighty deeds. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you remember from last week, we saw the beginning of Abram's life and story, how he was descended from Shem, and how he was called by God out of Ur the Chaldeans, and uh, how he went with his father uh, Terah to Haran, but then his father died in Haran, but Abram continued to go onward uh, to the land of Canaan because he had been called by God. God had told him to, to go, to leave the land of his kindred, to leave his father's house, to rather than trusting in all the things that would have been natural for him, to cast himself upon the Lord, uh, to look for a land that the Lord would provide, uh, that there was a promise of, of land, of inheritance, There was also a promise of blessing, that God would bless Abram and would bless him in various ways. He would make his name great, even as the builders of Babel had sought to make their name great by their own power uh, against God, so God graciously would uh, make Abram's name great, uh, not by Abram's might or power, but by the grace of God. He also promised Abram offspring. He promised to make him into a great nation, uh, a nation which uh, we know from the rest of the story would become the nation of Israel, that from 
uh, that nation would come one Lord Jesus Christ, the chief offspring of Abraham, through whom all the promises would be fulfilled. And all those who are in Christ are also, therefore, Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And in fact, God said to your descendants, I will give this land when Abram made it to Canaan. And then there was also the promise to bless all the nations, all the clans, all the families of the earth through Abram. And we'll see as time goes along, especially through his uh, offspring. Uh, But that there would be this worldwide blessing, uh, not only to his uh, descendants, but to all the nations uh, through him, that God would bless them. Even though they had wandered into idolatry, they had gone into sin, they had fallen away from his ways, uh, yet God would restore blessing, that he would uh, bring it to them through Abram and through his seed. And so you can think of the promises to Abram, which are later going to be uh, confirmed to him in the form of a covenant in chapter 15, that these covenant promises are um, the promise of blessing, fellowship with God, that God would be his God and he would be uh, his people. Um, There is the blessing of land, inheritance that God would provide for him, a place, a land in which God would dwell with him. Um, These are promises that we look to as well, that God would bless us, that God would grant us an inheritance, especially an everlasting inheritance for us. Uh, That God also promised him offspring. That's uh, not only is that refer to Christ, but we are that offspring that We also look to the hope that God will be the God of us and to our children uh, after us, and that he will make this nation, this people of God, this church, a great. And finally, there was that hope of, that promise of worldwide blessing, that all the families of the earth would be blessed, something that he is fulfilling even uh, to this day, in the midst of fulfilling, and something that we look to with great hope. Not only that the nations could be blessed, but that they would be blessed through Jesus Christ. And so after all these marvelous and great blessings, and and not only that, but Abram followed. Uh, He responded by faith. By faith, he went out not knowing where he was going, as Hebrews says. He went out to Canaan, and he travels through the land of Canaan. He goes to Shechem. He goes to between Bethel and Ai. Uh, Some of these places are going to be important later on. And and he goes down to the Negev, which is a word for the south of uh, Canaan, or the south of what would become Israel. Interestingly, usually that place was sparsely populated, but in the time of Abraham, our archaeologists have discovered that it was much more populated during that particular time period, uh, in the last couple centuries of the 2000s BC. Um, And so it fits very well with the historical context that Abram would sojourn there in the Negev. And we'll find after going to Egypt, that's where he returns to as well, uh, is in the south But, speaking of Egypt, in this passage we come to a test. Uh, We come to a trial. After this great high point of great promises, God's promises to Abram are put to the test. Things seem to go horribly wrong. Uh, All of the promises of God to Abram are are tested and, and seem to uh, not be there for Abram. Or at least we find that he's going to need God to act to fulfill these promises. Also, in this event, Abram's time in Egypt foreshadows Israel's time in Egypt. 
uh, that, as we'll find later on, that's why I read Exodus 3, the whole nation that came from Abram is going to sojourn down into Egypt. That's how the book of Genesis ends. Spoiler alert. Uh, There's going to be a famine, and they go down to Egypt, and God brings them out with a mighty hand with great plagues. We're going to find that Abram's uh, time in Egypt already foreshadows this, that God has already proved himself and his promises, um, and that he will be faithful to his promises, not only in Abram's day, but also in the days of Moses, and also in the days uh, after that, even to the present. And so, the question is, will God be faithful to his promises? And in it, God proves his faithfulness to his promises. This is a story uh, most particularly about God. So first, in the first part of this passage, we find that Abram's weakness was made evident and that God's promises were tested. So what happened? Remember, God had promised to bless Abram, but now there is a famine upon the land which is, you know, one of the, the curses that would be very typical of, of the Old Covenant, to be struck with famine, because famine usually meant death. Uh, famine was a lack of food. Uh, Israel, that land of Canaan, was especially reliant upon rain, uh, as opposed to Egypt, which was, had a little more reliable source of the Nile to produce water. Uh, but Israel, with God's blessing, could be a fruitful land of milk and honey, but it also could be struck with famine, and that is the case in verse 10. But what happened to this blessing? There's a famine, and it is severe in the land. We seem to be, he seems to be struck with curse. And then there was also a promise of land, right? That God had showed him the land now, and now God, Abram is not even, he doesn't own the land, but it isn't even able to support him. He can't even live there as a sojourner. Uh, to make it the point clear, verse 10 not only says that there was famine in the land, but that the famine was severe in the land. Uh, And so Abram has to look for food. He has to provide for himself. He has to look out for his life. So not only is Abram without property, but the land can't even sustain him as a sojourner. Now, instead of returning to Haran, you know, he could have gone back, uh, but he had been told to leave that land, and so he instead goes down to Egypt. Uh, as his descendants will later do, uh, beginning of this parallel. As Jacob and his 12 sons would later do so, Abram goes down to Egypt, hearing that they have food. But the question is, will he make it back? That'll be the question for Jacob and his 12 sons. It's going to be the question for Abram too. Is he going to make it back to the land that God had promised him? There is also a threat to the promise of offspring. How is God going to make Abram into a great nation? First, first of all, he doesn't even have a child yet. Sarai seems to be barren, but now his very life is threatened, and his wife could be taken from him. Uh, and both of those would, uh, would take away from this promise of offspring. Will Abram be killed? Will Abram's wife be taken from him? There is this enmity of the serpent and his offspring ready to wage war upon the woman and her offspring. And Abram is going to be very vulnerable in the land of Egypt. Egypt is a powerful land, a great civilization. uh, And he is simply a sojourner with a, a small clan of servants and herds and flocks. 
without the support of family, without the support of a clan, without the support of his kindred to stand up for him, you know, to make sure his rights were guarded. That was usually a a really helpful thing. That's why people lived in these larger households and relatives living together for mutual support. Uh, People don't rip you off. But he was now going to be vulnerable in the land of a very powerful country. And so Abram tells Sarai to not reveal the fact that they're married. And instead for Sarai to call herself uh, her, his sister. Now apparently it was legitimate to call her his sister. That's going to be made clear later in chapter 20. We'll talk about that. So uh, it wasn't so much that she was lying about being his sister, but she was withholding some kind of expected information you'd expect to be revealed that she was also his wife. Uh, Of course, these days, after the law of Moses at least was given, you're not supposed to marry your sister. So uh, this was a unique circumstance at the time. But why does Abram tell Sarai to say this? So that he doesn't get killed. The danger was that without connections, as one who was vulnerable, that he could be killed. Sarai was beautiful. And uh, beautiful, he could recognize it. The Egyptians could recognize it. Uh, And rather than committing adultery, the Egyptians were more likely to kill Abram and then take Sarai. Um, And I think the original readers of this book would have believed Abram. Again, remember, Moses is writing this book to the people of Israel. They are either in Egypt or have just come out of Egypt, and they know that the Egyptians can be rather oppressive. I don't think they're questioning Abram's um, uh, thought process here, that this was a real uh, danger. Uh, And so he comes up with this stratagem uh, to, to save his life. As her brother... Abram would have still been considered her guardian, and his consent would have been needed for marriage. So he's not telling her to go out and commit adultery. He's not telling other people to do that uh, either. Uh, He still would have been able, theoretically, to protect her. Later we'll find in Genesis chapter 24, uh, where Abram sends a servant to look for Rebekah, that even when her father was still alive. Perhaps he was uh, too old at this point, but not only does the servant deal with her father, but also her brother, uh, Laban, and receives both his consent as well as Rebecca's consent. That's the way it's supposed to work. Uh, And instead, though, uh, it's not going to be how it works, but that's probably Abram's thought. He's not leaving her totally unprotected, but they might take her regardless of whatever he does, and at least this way, uh, he would not be killed, and perhaps even more likely to protect her because he would be alive and may be able to draw out negotiations until they can get out of there. And, like I said, if they lawlessly took Sarai anyhow, at least he would survive. Now, Sarai obeyed her husband, and she said that she was uh, his sister. Now, if Abram was telling her to sin, she should have refused. If someone tells you to sin, even though they are in authority over you, uh, you should not sin. But I'm inclined to think that this plan was justified as self-defense and that Sarai is to be commended for her obedience. Um, certainly, Sarai generally is upheld as an example of, uh, of submission to her husband. Peter says, you know, submit yourselves to your own husbands as Sarai obeyed her 
husband and called him Lord. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that this is that occasion. We have to judge the situation on its own merits. But she withheld information, maybe a little bit like Esther, didn't tell the people that she was a Jew, and withheld that information for the pivotal point. Or more like the Hebrew midwives who deceived Pharaoh in his murderous intention, or Rahab who lied to the spies, or Jael, who deceived Sisera, or Michael, David's wife, who deceived Saul's soldiers. Uh, These women used deception against a hostile enemy who was seeking to kill the innocent. It's wrong to lie. It's wrong to kill. But there are particular occasions, as Scripture tells us, where killing is justified in, for example, self-defense. And likewise, from these examples, some of them more clear than others, uh, doubtless this one is one of the more debatable ones, uh, but that there is an uh, occasion where deception against a hostile enemy who is aggressively seeking to kill the innocent uh, might be justified. But as we will see, uh, it was not enough to deliver them. Even with this stratagem, even with this plan, Uh, put into action, husband and wife, as a team, uh, it is still not enough to save them from danger. At first, it seems to work. Abram's fears are confirmed. The Egyptians indeed do see that Sarai is beautiful. Uh, In fact, this whole family seems to have that uh, blessing, or most of them. Rebecca will be noted as beautiful. Rachel will be noted as beautiful. Um, And even though Sarai was 65 years old, you know, although they did live longer at the time, Uh, It's interesting to see how commentators uh, discuss that fact. But she was beautiful to to everyone. And uh, and the plan seems to work at first, similar to how the Hebrew midwives prevented Pharaoh from killing the Israelite boys uh, who were being targeted by a different Pharaoh. Again, see the parallels here. But Sarai's beauty is seen by the princes and is told to Pharaoh. That wasn't in Abram's initial thought process. He was simply thinking about the Egyptians in general. But Pharaoh is a lot more powerful than your average Egyptian. And when he hears of her beauty, he has to have her. And so she is taken into Pharaoh's house to be his wife. Uh, Continuing a pattern in Genesis here of seeing and taking. Eve saw the fruit and took it. The sons of God, whoever they were, they saw the daughters of men and they took them as wives. Um, So here, uh, Sarai's beauty is seen and then she is taken. Um, And that was not good. Uh, She was taken apparently without Abram being asked. You know, later when Pharaoh blames Abram, he doesn't say, and you gave your consent, you said I could marry her. No, he simply blames him for what he didn't say. Uh, if, if Abram had given his consent, that, that obviously would have been something he would have blamed him for. But rather, she is simply taken. Abram cannot resist Pharaoh. Who is he able to resist Pharaoh? That would have been, been folly. He is helpless as Pharaoh takes away his wife. He is humiliated in God's providence because it was Pharaoh who took her. Pharaoh deals well with his what he thinks is his brother-in-law, giving him gifts, uh, gifts that are mentioned here, but that's doubtless cold comfort to Abram. He is humbled. He is at his wit's end. 
Uh, He is powerless. He is helpless. He's been kicked out of the land. He has not been blessed. The chance for offspring here seems to be fading away, and he is in a very sticky situation in a foreign land. And how will he be able to be a blessing to the nations in this condition? His wife is in danger. If she virtually resists, uh, virtuously resists Pharaoh's advances, like Joseph will later resist Potiphar's wife, if she does that and the truth comes out about what they had done, they are both, as we say, dead meat. And so they are in danger. God makes it evident that Abram would not succeed on his own power. By himself, Abram was helpless. He was a peon in the midst of great powers. He was not like Nimrod and the builders of Babel who had all the forces of humanity at his back. That's not how he would succeed. He would need to trust God and to trust his promises. Abram and all his descendants were being taught in this to look to the Lord, to look to his grace, and to not trust in the might of their own arm to save them. Certainly do all that God's law permits you to do to protect yourself, but uh, it is not by might, not by power, but by the grace of God that we may be saved. Now, God also humbles you and I with trials. He puts you through difficulties. He, he doubtless humbles you from time to time, demonstrates your weakness, exposes your need for salvation. Why does he do that? In part so that you might not boast in your might, that you might learn to place your faith in him, that in weakness we might know God's strength, that we might look to the hope of everlasting life, which transcends the difficulties of this. As Paul and Barnabas and the others proclaimed, it is through tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God, uh, that we are humbled, we, we suffer, and we look to God for strength, for salvation. It's not by your own works that you achieve salvation and blessing. You can't resurrect your body. You can't achieve a new heavens and a new earth. All the governments of the world put together are not going to be able to achieve what we look for, for God to provide for us. We can't even escape judgment uh, when it comes to our works and as they're examined and found to be wanting. It is through the Lord's grace and His saving power and To him belongs the praise. As God will later, through Moses, tell the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And that leads us to our second point. God intervened to fulfill his promises. God observed what had been done to Abram in the land of Egypt as he would see his children generations from then. God would bring Abram and his household out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of Canaan. Pharaoh and his house would be compelled with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with plagues so that they would let Abram and Sarai and their household go with riches and with wealth, with blessing, as he would later do for their descendants under Moses, so he did for Abram and Sarai and their household. Consider the blessings again. First, remember the promise to bless? Well, 
Even though he had been struck with famine, now in Egypt, Abram is blessed abundantly in Egypt. He gains sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Seven uh, items here listed of, of people and animals. It is through God's intervention that he gets them. It's also through God's intervention that he gets to keep them. Uh, Because if Abram gets caught without these plagues that get sent, uh, they could have easily just been taken away and and worse. But through God's intervention, Moses, uh, sorry, Pharaoh uh, sends him out with all these things that he has given him. Get out of here. Take your stuff and go. I'll even give you soldiers to give you safe escort out of this land. And that we find in verse 20. Now, note the parallels to uh, the Israel in Egypt. When Israel left Egypt, they came out plundering the Egyptians. They asked their neighbor for jewelry, for gold, for clothing. And again, the Egyptians just wanted them to get out of there. They recognized God's power and God's uh, sovereignty and his protection of these people. And so they went out with all the riches that would... uh, Some of it went to the building of the golden calf, but some of it went to adorn the tabernacle, uh, doubtless unto the glory of God. And so Abram likewise is being uh, blessed by God. He even leads Egyptian slaves out of Egypt. As, of course, the Israelites will later be Egyptian slaves being led out of Egypt. These Egyptian slaves will be included in the covenant. Those male servants that are brought to him will be circumcised, as we'll find later on in chapter 17. Of course, one of those Egyptian slaves is probably Hagar, which we're going to later meet. She was Egyptian. Um, and we'll see more about her in time to come. So God, Abram is blessed. Abram is also able to return to the land of Canaan with his wife. They are all sent out by Pharaoh. A, a Pharaoh lets them go, and he gives them safe passage. So they return to the Negev, where they started in the south of Canaan. They make it back. Notice the parallel again to the exodus of Israel out of Egypt to the promised land. And the hope of future offspring is restored. Abram's life is spared and his wife is returned because God sent great plagues on Pharaoh and his house because of Sarai. You see in verse 17, But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Because she was Abram's wife and not Pharaoh's Wife, And so God sends judgment, not upon Abram, but upon Pharaoh and upon his house. Probably his house because those princes that reported her beauty to him, uh, probably his officials, part of his household. Not only is Abram's life spared initially, but even after his deception was discovered, he was spared. Uh, Pharaoh recognizes that he is suffering on account of what he has done to Abram. And so he's not going to do more harm to Abram at this point. And of course, what he had done to Sarai. Now, Pharaoh does try to shift the blame to Abram. He said, what have you done to me? Of course, you know, what had Pharaoh done to him? But what have you done to me? You didn't tell me that she was your wife. Um, Well, you didn't really ask. (laughs) You just took her. Uh, But Abram doesn't apologize, he doesn't defend himself, or at least none of that is recorded. Simply, we find here Pharaoh uh, complaining and trying to shift the blame, uh, gaslighting Abram, uh, and 
In fact, it's much like the way Adam and Eve say, well, it's the woman you gave me, the serpent that was here. Or the way Cain, who, who am I? Am I my brother's keeper? No one wants to accept responsibility. But Pharaoh perceives the judgment of God upon him. He recognizes, he connects the dots and uh, sees what he had done to Abram and his wife. And says, here, take your wife and go. Therefore, Pharaoh does not harm Abram. God had protected Abram. God had protected Sarai. He had brought the two back together so that later they will have the uh, offspring of promise. God had cursed the one who had dishonored Abram. Remember, God had promised the one who, that I will bless those who bless you, and the one who dishonors you, I will curse. And we meet a few verses later here with one who dishonored him. And what happened to him? He got cursed by God. So by sending great plagues, God had protected Abram, and he obtained the return of Abram's wife to him and preserved the hope of offspring. Note again uh, the parallel to how God protected. He protected Moses, who was being sought out by Pharaoh's soldiers. He protected the male children of Israel when Pharaoh was trying to stamp out their strength and their nation. And then note also to how God had later sends ten plagues upon Egypt and strikes them with all sorts of afflictions because God, because Pharaoh was holding and oppressing uh, the people of Israel, God's firstborn son, or in a different analogy, his wife, uh, his people, and so God makes him let go with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Now in this way. Through God's mighty power and faithfulness, Abram and Sarai return to the promised land. And the hope for the nations is preserved. God is faithful to his promises and to his covenant. This would be only the beginning. He proved himself as a faithful protector of Abram and his household. We come to this, uh, to this event and events like it in Psalm 105. We sang the first part of it earlier. We'll sing this part after the sermon. But they're recounting how God had been faithful to his promises. It says, When they were few in number, of little account, and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. God looked out for them. Though by human standards they were powerless, God was faithful to his promises and proved their Lord, their ally, their covenant God. Now in thinking of this, remember that we are in Christ, the offspring of Abraham, heirs according to promise. God will fulfill his promises to you. He will be faithful to his covenant with you, to all who believe in Jesus Christ. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Though you be put through trials and tribulations and feel humbled and weak and powerless and uh, find difficulty in your life of various kinds and humbled for your sins, yet God will never leave you nor forsake you. He will care for you. Even if he seems absent and you experience weakness, yet he sees, he knows He sees what is done to you. He cares, and he will act for your good. God not only preserved Abram and Israel, 
he also preserved Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham. King Herod sought to kill him and stamp him out, but God brought Christ to Egypt and then out of Egypt as the fulfillment of Abraham, as the one who would fulfill these promises as the source of blessing. So God will bless his people in Christ. He will redeem you from bondage, from the domain of darkness, and from the evil one. He will care for you and give you an everlasting inheritance, one that is even greater than the land of Canaan, Uh, that even now we look to the whole earth in which God dwells with his people, and that he will renew all things at Christ's return, and we have a heavenly inheritance, a city built by God which will never perish God makes his people and will make his people into a great nation despite persecution and oppression. As we see in the book of Acts, great trials the church goes through, and yet God is faithful to lift up his church and to multiply it. God will rebuke kings on his church's account. He will save his people. He will bless those who bless them. He will curse the one who dishonors him. He will preserve his people so that they might be a blessing to the nations and that the whole earth might know the grace of God. So God proved his faithfulness to his promises and he does so again and again. So as the Psalm 105 says, remember God's wondrous works. Remember his miracles, each one. Remember his judgments, his faithfulness to his covenant. Seek the Lord and his strength Do not be like the proud builders of Babel, but rather be like the one, like Abram and Sarai, who are delivered by the God who has promised to be their God. Trust him in trials. Endure steadfastly by faith. And respond to his grace. He who has brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, have no other gods before him. Keep his covenant. Observe his ways. Walk in his ways through gratitude and love. Praise him among the nations. Make known his glories and his faithfulness. Let us pray. Dear God, we thank you for your faithfulness, your trustworthiness, that we know that you are both able and willing, that you are both powerful and good, that you have granted us your promises, that we do not presume upon you, We are not worthy to stand in your presence or to have a great name, but rather uh, you have granted us your promises in your word and confirmed them to us through Jesus Christ so that they have been held out to us freely. And so we we claim them. We call upon you to act. We pray that you would uh, make your people a, a great nation throughout the earth, that all the nations would be blessed through the Lord Jesus Christ that you would vindicate your name and that you would vindicate your church, that you would give your church relief from those who oppress it, those who seek to stop it and to hinder your word, that you would overcome those who speak falsehood and error, that you would uh, overcome these uh, tyrants or these false teachers, uh, that you would instead protect your people and maintain your cause And so that by your grace, uh, we might be blessed, that we might inherit everlasting life, that you would be the God of us and our children after us, and that you would bless uh, the peoples, the families, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.